Since 2015, Pop Health Podcast has brought to you some of the best minds in healthcare, including leaders from government, not-for-profit, and investor-backed powerhouses, as they share successes, failures, and how our audience can move forward in today's constantly evolving healthcare world. Thank you for joining us for today's episode presented by 24-Hour Home Care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Pop Health Podcast. I'm Gavin Ward, host of today's episode. Today, we had the opportunity to sit down with Dr. Ronald Fong, physician advisor for Mercy General Hospital in the greater Sacramento area, part of Dignity Health, which is now part of Common Spirit. In today's episode, Dr. Fong talks a little bit about the physician advisor role where he serves as a liaison between the frontline physicians at Mercy General and the care coordination department. Some of you may know that the physician advisor role is commonplace in a hospital setting, but is not always in-house. And Dr. Fong talks about the benefits of having a person in-house versus outsourcing. He also talks about the many marathons that he's run and the many deliveries of brand new babies that he's had. So we hope you enjoyed today's episode. Feel free to check out other episodes of Pop Health Podcast by visiting us on our website, pophealthpodcast.com, checking us out on Apple Podcasts, our new YouTube channel, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen or watch your podcasts. Thanks, everybody. Enjoy the show. Well, hello, Dr. Fong. Thanks so much for joining the show today. Gavin, thanks for the invitation. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Fong and I were just chatting, folks. Uh, he is up in Sacramento, of course, and it is quite hot uh, up there. I'm on Southern California today, and uh, I got you beat. I am in the 90s. Uh, well, I guess right. you're in the 90s, too. <laughs> we're in the 90s, but the forecast is for our triple digits for the rest of the week. Oh, man. Well, let's uh, let's hope and pray no fires for either of us. Absolutely. So, uh, Dr. Fung, we like to kick off the show by getting to know the guest a little bit outside of the healthcare workplace. So, can you share with us something about you that might surprise the audience? Maybe a fun fact, hobby, something like that. Um, fun fact, and this is one I use a great deal when icebreakers, like, guess who did this? So, my go-to icebreaker is uh, I completed 19 marathons and delivered over 300 babies, but never at the same time. <laughs> Well, can delivering a baby be like a marathon sometimes? Uh, it's for the mom, yes. For the mom, <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, for the for the moms with extended uh, labor and so forth, that you just feel sorry for them because, you know, you're there. You could walk around. You could get something to eat. And mom is pretty much right by the bed, and she's pushing so hard. And especially when mom starts to get tired. So, yeah, I imagine any birth for, 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 for a mom, uh, it, it might seem like a marathon. Yeah. What would you say is, um, if you can recall of the 300 babies uh, plus that you helped deliver, is there any uh, like success story or like a moment where you're like, man, we pulled it off? Like anything, anything that stands out in your career? A, a couple of them. One is uh, deliver twins. And that's always a little bit because your focus has to be on two uh, babies. So even though you got the first one out, your work is not done. And usually yep. the presentation of a twin is different than a single uh, birth. So it's one of those things where your mind is always calculating and making adjustments. So now we got this one out, this child out, we got to work on a second one. Uh, usually they tend to be a little bit smaller, so that may facilitate things. Okay. But uh, one time, uh, a, a relatively common phenomenon is what we call a shoulder distortion. It's when the shoulder abuts over the pelvis and you get the head out and you think everything's going just smoothly and all of a sudden you realize there's resistance and obviously you're not going to pull harder and when this is when i was at uc davis and my resident said baby's not coming out baby's not coming out and i go okay let's calm down you know i said 
if we got time to panic, we got time to think. So let's go over our maneuvers, what we need to do. And about 75% of the time, if you just push on the baby's shoulder, so it kind of slips underneath the pelvic bone, it comes out. So we did that. And, you know, luckily everything worked out just great. And, you know, mom didn't say, what's, you know, oh, same wrong. No, no, we just got to try this maneuver and just kind of get the baby's shoulders a little bit uh, abutting against the bone, but we can get it out. And we did. And I just remember my, my resident, you know, his eyes were as big as saucers and he was sweating. And he goes, he goes, oh my gosh. So how long did that take? Like three, four, five minutes? I go, no, it took about 15 seconds. <laughs> so I think it's that perspective, you know, in terms of that, you know, obviously for delivering a baby, you know, you want to be a joyous moment. You want a you know, family's there. So sometimes the pressure's on. But it's amazing how quickly things can turn for that. And just remembering the perspective of a resident when you don't have that experience. You know, each second seems like a minute, if not an hour. Oh, yeah. He, he was hyperventilating. He's like, what was that, three, four or five minutes? And I go, no, oh, I think it was like 10, 15 seconds. Yeah, well, it's great that you were the calm pilot. Uh, with your <laughs> resident. Uh, hopefully that brought peace of mind to the mom because uh, a panicked doctor is probably never a... Yeah, yeah. So one of the things, oh, yeah, you, know, you don't want to panic. You just tell the mom. And again, you don't want to... You want to be honest with mom, just tell the situation, the baby, you know, simple terms, the baby's shoulders hitting against one of your bones, and we just need to get the shoulder underneath the bone, and we're going to yeah. press down on it. So, again, awesome. yeah, you never want to, obviously, uh, you want to be honest and not panic the mom, but at the same time, you don't want to hide anything from your patient. Uh, definitely. Uh, good good points. Well said. So uh, let's talk a little bit about your background, uh, Dr. Fong. So I know you're in Sacramento today. Tell us a little bit about your upgrade, upbringing, excuse me, uh, where you grew up and eventually how you got into healthcare. Sure. Uh, pretty much I grew up in Sacramento and I live about six miles from my parents' house, actually. So um, I liked it, had a great childhood and wanted to return here to raise the family. Uh, went to C.K. McClatchy High School. Then I did uh, my undergrad at UC Irvine back when it was really small. And I think most people didn't even know where UC Irvine was. So now I go back one of the few times I see the campus and I go, oh, my goodness, they actually have a bookstore now. <laughs> Before, we didn't have a bookstore. Oh, wow. It was basically, this big warehouse. You submitted your books on a piece of paper. You gave it to a runner, and that's how you got your books. So, so I was there from 80 to 84, and it was a really small campus. What inspired you to, to go down south to UCI? Uh, one of the things was my brother was doing his PhD at that time. And he said, if you're interested in medicine, think about Irvine. Uh, he said that it's the faculty student ratio was great. And it was uh, in my upper division biology classes. There are times when we had maybe a dozen students and a teacher would have the syllabus as an outline. But he said, Pretty much, you know, you guys will drive this course. We as a syllabus for an outline, some things we could discuss, but if, if you guys have an interest in something, we need to spend more time on it, let's do it. So I love the personal attention there. And Irvine at that time was a little bit crazy because it was kind of a pre-med factory. Yeah. And it was so small that in Irvine, you got a bachelor of science in biological science, regardless of the classes you took. And I, I think that the urban legend rumor that that was going around was that in our class, in my graduating class, uh, 44% of the graduates of the uh, School of Biological Sciences went on to med school. And granted, it's not huge. You know, we didn't, we didn't have like thousands like UCLA or Berkeley, but yeah. it was known as, you know, if you were thinking seriously about medicine, Irvine was a place to kind of go. Practically everyone did research uh, to kind of, you know, dot their resumes and so forth. So 
But I thought that um, going away, one of them was that, you know, the infamous, you kind of want to go away from home. You know, my two brothers had gone to Davis and Davis is obviously a fine institution, but wanted to uh, be a little bit separated so you couldn't have that advantage of just running home if you needed something. So I thought, you yeah. know, that would foster some independence. And two, again, my brother just was doing that. He says, you know, you, you go just take a look at it. And you might find it's one of those things where uh, we didn't have we didn't have a football. Irvine still doesn't have a football team. Right. <laughs> so they have that great T-shirt in their bookstore, you know, uh, undefeated since 1965, <laughs> yeah, Irvine football. And it was it, it, the uh, relationships we built. Uh, my dorm only had about 30 people in it. So you got to know the people really well. And for me, I think at that time, I think I would have been overwhelmed with a larger campus. Yeah. So it gave me the space and time, you know, for, for, for individuals to, to for that phase of growth and development where you could do it at your own time. And it was nice because we had, you know, uh, not a lot of distractions. Uh, at that time, there was no fraternity or sorority houses. So really, and that was one of the big knocks against Irvine was that it was dull. Yeah. But I think for people that pretty much had an idea of what they want to do, especially uh, engineering or biological sciences, um, yeah, I think I think it was a, it was a, it was a not very nice environment. Okay, great. So you go to undergrad there, and then ultimately you become a doctor. And I'm going to fast forward a little bit, and um, I know you are big, and your your career shows it on teaching. So at what point in your you know time as a doctor or doing med school, when did you have this inspiration to be a teacher of others? I think it was probably during uh, your clinical years, and then you saw how others modeled for you. And I think it's, you know, paying it forward. And it was just a wonderful experience. And you saw dedicated individuals who are really good clinicians at the same time, their passion about teaching, about passing it on for the next generation. And I think that if you get uh, exposed to really good role models and mentors, I think you you realize that you're part of something bigger than yourself, the people that have gone before, and obviously the people that come after you. And uh, just the idea of exchanging ideas and interacting with people and, and seeing their, their faces light up and seeing, you know, why they want to go to medicine. And again, I think, you know, having a bit of a link uh, to the future, uh, but really it was, uh, it, it comes down to relationships. And I just had wonderful exposures, wonderful mentors who were faculty. And I thought, wow, and these people were just you know, very happy doing what they were doing. Yeah. Okay, cool. So you developed this passion for teaching. I know in your career, you talked about residents. So you were leading and instructing residents. Um, before we get into the uh, kind of meat and potatoes of our episode today, which is the physician advisor role with case management mm -hmm. uh, there at Mercy, um, one thing that you do on the side that I've learned a little bit about, uh, since you do have this passion for teaching, is True North Shepherding. Um, really quickly, can you talk about what True North Shepherding is? True North Shepherding is the extension of teaching and I think mentoring. And I think, again, uh, the generations that we have now, because we're so, uh, our, our sound bites or, you know, time cycles, news cycles is so com condensed, compressed. I don't know if they, people really think long-term. You know, people think about the next week, next month, and so forth. But the thing is that, you know, before you know it, years will just fly by, especially once you get married and have kids, and all of a sudden your kids are, oh, my goodness, they're off to college. Where did the time go? And, you know, the, the point is that we all leave legacies. But the difference is, are we designing the legacy we want to leave? And, and, and we do that. And, and the legacies are, you know, how we touch people's lives. 
And one of the things that kind of brought that on, Gavin, was that I would have about two or three graduates each year at the family practice, uh, family medicine residency. Come January of their senior year, I would ask them, so where are you going to be working in June and July? And they said, I'm not sure yet. Maybe I'll take a gap year. Uh, I don't know. And it just astounded me. And maybe it's a generational thing that, you know, you wrote this in your personal statement. You wanted to be a doctor all your life. You come to this moment. And all of a sudden you said, I think I'm going to hit the pause button. Yeah. And I think part of it is that, you know, did they, it, it's sort of this treadmill that we get on in terms of the ladder of success, if you want to call it, where I got to climb this, I got to do this, here's my resume, go to undergrad, go to med school, get a residency, you know, all these things. And it becomes a checklist or a bucket list. But the thing is that, you know, are those individual accomplishments, are they integrated into what you would like to be? And let's face it, you know, uh, we all see people maybe towards the last days or lives where very, I don't know anyone has said, I wish I had spent more time at the office. Yeah. Yeah. So wow. I think it's one of those things where just a formal type of mentorship, you want to call it life coaching, that's fine too. But just taking people at a stage, especially with the pandemic, is, you know, things happen so quickly. So what what would you like to leave behind? How would you like to re be remembered? Or, you know, we go to, we, every day, every moment we touch, we interact with people's lives. What's the meaning and purpose you want behind behind those interactions? Or is it one of those things that you're just too busy and you just wind up, you know, quick brushes or so forth and it's really nothing lasting well that's a that's a big passion of yours i can tell and i know i've talked to you a little bit about it um off the air as well uh folks want to learn more about true north shepherding um how do they learn more if they go just true north shepherding.com okay awesome so let's let's jump into your current role today as a physician advisor which i think for a, a lay person and this is specifically with the care coordination team, some people might refer to it as a case management team. A lot of our listeners and viewers work in healthcare, many of them in post-acute care, so they're often interacting with case managers and just for discharges, things like that. So what is this physician advisor role specifically with care coordination or case management? So it's, uh, I'm sure many people in your audience, Gavin, are understand the amount of resources that are allocated just to hospital care. You're in an acute setting, you have a big facility of a lot of physicians and so forth. And people obviously have gotten to a point where they need acute care. So, you know, the, the stakes are, are increased. But once, once the acute setting has subsided and they're ready to be discharged home or to another facility, such as still a nursing facility, there's a lot of coordination. We just don't say to the patient, well, you're, you're done and good luck and, you know, wish you all the best. So one of the things is that we call transitionary care or in terms of how do we continue the care, but it need not be in the inpatient setting for the hospital. So at least acute, acute phase. One of the things is that we have physicians doing their work, but in the healthcare industry, we're highly regulated, highly, highly regulated. So the T's have to be crossed and I's need to be dotted. And especially because Medicare is one of the big drivers for that. So one of the things is just lining up all the paperwork and we don't want the physicians doing that. We want the physicians to focus on their relationship and the care for the patient and their families. So what we try to do is ask the physician basically to be a resource. What do you need? Can you identify, articulate what you need? And, you know, we will try to match those resources to what you need. So we don't want them filling out a gazillion forms. We don't want them checking boxes. So really the physician advisors that interface between the physician and care coordination team in terms of the resource allocation, make sure we align it 
always with a, a purpose of helping the physician care for the patient. So many times I'm sure your listeners will say, well, you know, length of stay and all these things and get the patient out. No, because you could, you could get the patient out, but if they just get readmitted or whatever, that, that's not right. So one of the things is that we always try to ask, what do you need to advance the patient's care? That's how we try to phrase it, mm. not what you need to get a patient discharged. Yeah. And, and again, you know, half the patients say, or the physicians say, well, I need, you know, this x-ray done. I need this echocardiogram done. I need this medication, which is very difficult to get. So once that's been identified, then we can go ahead and allocate our resources, work with the pharmacist, work with uh, laboratory technicians, and so forth. So again, bring the resources to the physician in order that they can do their jobs. And so one of the things is that, I'm sorry, Gavin, one of the things is also what we call oh, revenue integrity. So basically, <laughs> that we, that's, that's my job, is to make okay. sure that I place the patient in the right uh, setting, whether it's outpatient, uh, ambulatory, or inpatient, because Medicare wants us to make it right. And if you don't get it right, then you get dinged, whether you overbill, underbill, and all these things. So I'm sure many of people in your audience are very familiar with just uh, the extensive regulation that's involved in healthcare. Oh yeah. So one thing you said is uh, you want to, or Medicare basically wants to make you want to make sure it's in the right setting or right. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned Medicare, but you also deal with other payers, right? Okay. So are the rules if Medicare does it, does it pretty do all the other like insurance companies generally follow suit or? It's also uh, it's a case, almost a case by case or uh, insurance by insurance. Sometimes they'll adopt Medicare because they figure that would just be easier. But sometimes they'll have their own nuances, or they'll say, "Yeah, we don't quite agree with Medicare on Medicare on this one. Perhaps a particular procedure or a particular diagnosis." So most part, uh, the insurance companies obviously will look at Medicare as a template, and if they think this is pretty aligned, pretty consistent. Yeah, let's go with it. But most of them probably have their own set. So that's where, again, we come in is to understand the differences. So, again, the physician doesn't have to worry about, you know, the physician should not have to worry about what the patient's insurance status is. That shouldn't even matter. You know, they look at it one way or the other. And obviously, we do come back with them at perhaps the back end by saying, oh, this is a Medicare patient. So in order to qualify for this, this is the form you got to fill out as opposed to another insurance. So really... You know, when they hit the floor in the emergency room or get brought up, the physician should not have to even give, you know, one second of thought to saying, well, what's this patient's insurance? That's yeah. not helping advance their care. Okay. Okay, good. So in your day-to-day at Mercy General, uh, you know, who, who are you reporting up to, I guess? Like, who's your boss? Well, I do. We have a care coordinator, uh, director, and we have a chief medical officer. So those are two main individuals in which I report to. But we also have utilization review committees. We have pharmacy. We have other people where uh, we say report to, but interactions with, because okay. they're all germane to how we, again, we have a, a great deal of resources, but we want to be efficient. And again, we want to line it up so that it actually gets to the party that needs it. So with, uh, with your day-to-day, so this physician advisor role, is this, do most hospitals have this? And is it like a Monday through Friday kind of role or how does it work? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of pretty much Monday through Friday, unless we have other things that, you know, let's say there's some type of pandemic going on, then it extends it. Hospitals will vary in terms of what they think is the value or the infamous, you know, return of investment on a physician advisor. 
I, I think if you talk to most physician advisors or, or facilities that incorporate one in-house, as opposed to outsourcing it, there's that, uh, A, you build relationships with the physicians because you're right there. And I make uh, what we call multidisciplinary rounds. Yeah. So I'm right there at a nurse's station uh, and I just can't do everything remotely. That, that, that doesn't work because when I have uh, questions or conversations with physicians, it really helps that I could talk to them in person. Yeah. It just builds a relationship and it takes time to build that trust. Number two is that you could respond in real time. And you know the hospital's uh, flow process. Whereas if you're off-site, you might say, well, just do this. And then they're not realizing, well, the hospital doesn't have that capability. So I, I think it's one of those things where uh, the value of physician advisor is that it does the what we call reviews to make sure that the patient is placed properly, whether it's ambulatory, outpatient, or inpatient. But also in terms of working with uh, are we deliver? Are we being efficient in our resources, and being that uh, conduit, ambassador, bridge, whatever you want to call it, between the physicians and our care coordinations by saying, so are we working together, or is it we're working in you know the infamous phrase silos? So we really need to be working together, and again, are we delivering things in a timely fashion when the physician uh, requests it? Okay, so our. So you're saying some hospitals will have someone like yourself uh, who's there in person. Others might um, like outsource it to a separate right. entity, even mm -hmm. at times. Mm -hmm. like a, That's correct. Okay. And then does every care coordination or case management department have some type of physician advisor role, whether it's in-house or contracted or? Yeah, they usually will have some capacity because again, uh, it's one of those things where just the, uh, what we call secondary reviews for the placement. Okay. So there is a a heavy dose of administration <laughs> involved in this. And I think in healthcare, uh, no one can get away from that. Okay, got it, got it. So uh, Dr. Fong, you work at Mercy General there in the uh, greater Sacramento area and uh, Dignity Health uh, has recently become known, I guess, as Common Spirit. Can you briefly share about that change? Sure, I think it's, oh, well, I'm trying to think, it was about two years ago with the formal announcement of Catholic Health Initiative. So it was a merger of two good-sized health systems, and one, I think, for what's going on in terms of the uh, nature of hospitals now. They seem to be more mergers and acquisitions. So we did that, and I think it's probably, even at this point, it's probably a lot of the changes are more the back end, but I think for our patients, the day-to-day -day stuff, we still have the signage that still says Mercy General Dignity you know, Hospital. We still got, I think, our envelopes, our stationary, a fair amount of still dignity out. Yeah. I think one of the things is that we just had a recent change where we changed our email address instead of dignityhealth.org is commonspirit.org. But really, I think in the most of the day-to-day -day stuff, uh, it, it really hasn't changed. And I, I think that's a good thing. So people don't have to relearn uh, you know, a gazillion things then. I think probably more in terms of the uh, administrative uh, levels uh, uh, higher up. That's probably where there's probably more of the changes. Got it. Okay, cool. Going back to the um, the physician advisor role, um, one thing I wanted to clarify, if I'm a patient at your hospital, um, would I have any interaction with a physician advisor typically? Typically not. It's going to be probably, uh, let's see, you, you probably have interaction with the finance to make sure that uh, your insurance is aligned, and this is what you're, depending on what your insurance policy covers. 
that you understand what the financial responsibilities are. And that uh, if you're Medicare, again, it's that uh, nuance because if you're out, if you're ambulatory, you're responsible for 20% of your bill. If you're inpatient, you're not. So it has financial ramifications depending on your placement. And again, your placement is dependent on your clinical picture, not an administrative scorecard. So we think that you have something that, well, um, let's say you're dizzy, you fell, you're a little groggy. So we better keep you overnight because we got to make sure that uh, it clears. You could walk okay and you're, you know, everything's okay. So that would be probably observation where we wouldn't have to, you know, do anything too extensive. But let's say you got a real bad pneumonia and you need uh, intravenous antibiotics. You're running a temperature and it takes, you know, maybe a couple of days for your fever to break. That would be inpatient because that's a higher level of care. And as the Medicare speak is that your uh, placement is dependent on two factors, the severity of your condition and the intensity of the care that will match it. Got of it. Course, that's always, of course, that's always up to... Uh, arbitration or a person's individual interpretation of like, well, I think this person is really, really sick. And I think we did, uh, you know, we had a really intense care and then people will say, yeah, no, it wasn't that intense. <laughs> Got it. So, uh, you, so the, your role, I guess, is it's a liaison role, right? Between care coordination and physicians um, is friction. I mean, do you, if you mind me asking, like, is there ever friction? Uh, you don't have to say at your hospital, but in general, can there be friction between case management and physicians? And what is that typically over? Sure. Yeah. I think it's one of those things where, you know, I, you know as a physician, I'm, I, I try to be remember and be keenly aware, like how frustrating it is when you're trying to see patients, you're busy, you got maybe 12, 15, 18 patients to see. In the inpatient setting, some are very complex and detailed, and some require extensive family meetings. So your time, and then all of a sudden you get uh, you get a text saying, "Can you do this? Can you check this box?" and so forth. And you know, sort of just frustrating for you know, say, "Why can't we just do this for a patient?" So it's not so much I think friction, but um, the worlds that we live in. And part of it is that do you really want to spend a great deal of time for the physicians to learn all that? which they may not need to use, but they yeah. help understanding. So I think part of it is that when there is a point of frustration, then what I try to do is say, all right, uh, this is why it needs to be done from a regulation standpoint. It's not because we enjoy making people's lives miserable or <laughs> interrupting the days, but in order for this patient to get the care you want, you know, the government or the insurance stipulates we have to do this. So I think a lot of times it's the educational component for it or just giving them the why, because, you know, many times we get frustrated when we don't know the answer to our why, right? Why, yeah. why, why am I waiting in line? Why is it taking so long? And it doesn't move it many faster, but I think if you, if, the, if you have an identifiable person that's, you know, if they could contact me anytime saying, how come I can't get X, Y, and Z, or why is it taking so long? Then I, I think, in, you know, for them to have, again, individual or hopefully we've had a relationship then I'll say, okay, uh, how much do you want to know? Do you want me to go through the entire thing if you want? Or do you want to give you sort of the you know, shorthand version? Just tell me how much you need to know in terms of addressing your frustration and your, your knowledge. And, and I'll, you know, then I will uh, scale it to whatever they want. Got it. Great. Well, hey, you've 
really been uh, pretty clear, concise, and compelling with all these answers, uh, Dr. Fong. So um, we are pretty much at the end of today's episode. Is there anything else you think the audience should know about the physician advisor role? Uh, it's it's one of those things where again, you know, as medicine is going to be very interesting. Is what we're going to be moving forward in terms of medicine, as we saw with the pandemic, uh, you know, how it could quickly overwhelm our, our hospital systems, and then also the back end or or the other end is that you know our skilled nursing facilities are boarding care. So I think hopefully that patients, if nothing else, and this is in general, be more proactive in your care. And one of the things that you could really do is if you're having, let's say you're carrying a little extra weight and so forth, or you're sedentary, you'd be surprised by just making some lifestyle changes to get healthier, how that's going to improve your outcomes in terms of recovery, if you need surgery or these other things, or also your placement. Because if you're severely deconditioned, let's face it, you know, when you're in a hospital bed, you're lying there most of the time, and that just further deconditions you. Yeah, That makes your placement a little bit more challenging, because if you need a higher level, then other people competing for it. So I, I just want well, to just remind our, you know, the audience, and they work in healthcare, but you know, anyone else that in general is that really, you know, take care of your health, be proactive in it, and you will pay dividends. And especially if you're caring for, uh, uh, senior relatives and so forth. And it's never too late to do something. You know, you have people that are smoking all the time. Ah, you know, it's too late for me to stop smoking. No. And there'll be benefits from it in terms of, you know, potential complications, your recovery and so forth. So again, general message is you can't improve your health no matter where you are at, at your stage. And it does make a difference. So how do, how do you take care of yourself, Dr. Fong? <laughs> I'm at the beck of my call, my husky. <laughs> so, uh, so having you know having a dog, and I think a lot of people during the pandemic did a lot more walking with their dogs. So, obviously, with the dog, so walking in the morning, walking at night with my wife, which is great. And I still run. No, don't do the marathons anymore, but I still run and try to go to the gym because it'd be very hard, even as a physician advisor capacity, it'd be very hard for me to you know tell someone or, or, yeah. or, or say, well, I think you know here's the health, and I'm not doing the same things. And, it, you know, Gavin, for me, uh, it just helps me think clearer when I exercise. Yes, I, I know what you mean. I do the treadmill every day. Um, and it's, it's, it's almost like I look forward to it sometimes. Um, oh, it's great. And you know, for people, again, you know, it's not Olympic style training intensity or, you know, you don't have to do a marathon, but just do. And I, I, I always try to shy away from exercise. I said, do an activity that you enjoy. Find an enjoyable activity. And once you find an enjoyable activity, you'll like it. It'll be fun. Maybe you could bring in your family and friends. So it's not this dreaded, oh my goodness, I got to go to the gym from 5.30 to 6.30. I got to do you know, a gazillion squats. I got to do lift these many reps and stuff like that. It becomes, again, you know, the another to-do list. And I think for a lot of people, then they just decide, ah, you know, it's not <laughs> worth it. Nice. Well, hey, good advice. And I'm glad you're still running after all those marathons and delivering babies. And uh, glad your Huskies enjoying time with you as well. Uh, Dr. Fong, as we wrap it up today, if folks want to keep tabs on what you're up to or any uh, anything you're up to, is LinkedIn the best way to follow you? Or? Yeah, they can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, and if they, again, go to the website, www.truenorthshepherding.com. Uh, and um, I'm also on Twitter at edifiquest, E D I. F-I-Q-E-S-T. So, um, yeah, but but LinkedIn, I, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. 
All right. Awesome. Well, folks, again, uh, Dr. Ron Fong has been our guest today, a physician advisor at Mercy General Hospital there in the greater Sacramento area. Uh, Dr. Fong, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, Gavin, my pleasure. And uh, again, thank you very much. This was very enjoyable. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of Pop Health Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. And if you have and want to check out other episodes, visit us at pophealthpodcast.com, iTunes or Apple Music, Spotify, Stitcher, and now YouTube as well. Take care.